Section 11 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Jane Lampton Clemens. This was my mother. When she died in October 1890, she was well along in her eighty-eighth year, a mighty age, a well-contested fight for life for one who at forty was so delicate of body as to be accounted a confirmed invalid and destined to pass soon away. I knew her well during the first twenty-five years of my life, but after that I saw her only at wide intervals, for we lived many days' journey apart. I am not proposing to write about her, but merely to talk about her not give her formal history, but merely make illustrative extracts from it, so to speak, furnish flashlight glimpses of her character, not a processional view of her career. Technically speaking, she had no career, but she had a character, and it was of a fine and striking and lovable sort. What becomes of the multitudinous photographs which one's mind takes of people, out of the millions which my mental camera must have taken of this first and closest friend, only one clear and strongly defined one of her early date remains. It dates back forty-seven years. She was forty years old then, and I was eight. She held me by the hand, and we were kneeling by the bedside of my brother, two years older than I, who lay dead, and the tears were flowing down her cheeks unchecked, and she was moaning. That dumb sign of anguish was perhaps new to me, since it made upon me a very strong impression an impression which holds its place still with the picture which it helped to intensify and make memorable. She had a slender, small body, but a large heart, a heart so large that everybody's grief and everybody's joys found welcome in it, and hospitable accommodation. The greatest difference which I find between her and the rest of the people whom I have known is this, and it is a remarkable one. Those others felt a strong interest in a few things, whereas to the very day of her death she felt a strong interest in the whole world and everything and everybody in it. In all her life she never knew such a thing as a half-hearted interest in affairs and people, or an interest which drew a line and left out certain affairs, and was indifferent to certain people. The invalid who takes a strenuous and indestructible interest in everything and everybody but himself and to whom a dull moment is an unknown thing and an impossibility, is a formidable adversary for disease 
and a hard invalid to vanquish. I am certain that it was this feature of my mother's makeup that carried her so far toward ninety. Her interest in people and other animals was warm, personal, friendly. She always found something to excuse, and as a rule to love in the toughest of them, even if she had to put it there herself. She was the natural ally and friend of the friendless. It was believed that, Presbyterian as she was, she could be beguiled into saying a soft word for the devil himself, and so the experiment was tried. The abuse of Satan began. One conspirator after another added his bitter word, his malign reproach, his pitiless censure, till at last, sure enough, the unsuspecting subject of the trick walked into the trap. She admitted that the indictment was sound, that Satan was utterly wicked and abandoned, just as these people had said. But would any claim that he had been treated fairly? A sinner was but a sinner. Satan was just that, like the rest. What saves the rest? Their own efforts alone? No or none might ever be saved. To their feeble efforts is added the mighty help of pathetic, appealing, imploring prayers that go up daily out of all the churches in Christendom and out of myriads upon myriads of pitying hearts. But who prays for Satan? Who in eighteen centuries has had the common humanity to pray for the one sinner that needed it most, our one fellow and brother who most needed a friend yet had not a single one, the one sinner among us all who had the highest and clearest right to every Christian's daily and nightly prayers for the plain and unassailable reason that his was the first and greatest need he being among the sinners the supremest. This friend of Satan was a most gentle spirit, and an unstudied and unconscious pathos was her native speech. When her pity or her indignation was stirred by hurt or shame inflicted upon some defenseless person or creature, she was the most eloquent person I have heard speak. It was seldom eloquence of a fiery or violent sort, but gentle, pitying, persuasive, appealing, and so genuine and so nobly and simply worded, and so touchingly uttered, that many times I have seen it win the reluctant and splendid applause of tears. Whenever anybody or any creature was being oppressed, the fears that belonged to her sex and her small stature retired to the rear, and her soldierly qualities came promptly to the front. One day in our village I saw a vicious devil of a Corsican, a common terror in the town, 
chasing his grown daughter past cautious male citizens with a heavy rope in his hand and declaring he would wear it out on her my mother spread her door wide to the refugee and then instead of closing and locking it after her stood in it and stretched her arms across it barring the way the man swore cursed threatened her with his rope but she did not flinch or show any sign of fear she only stood straight and fine and lashed him shamed him derided him defied him in tones not audible to the middle of the street but audible to the man's conscience and dormant manhood and he asked her pardon and gave her his rope and said with a most great and blasphemous oath that she was the bravest woman he ever saw and so went his way without other word and troubled her no more he and she were always good friends after that for in her he had found a long-felt want somebody who was not afraid of him one day in st louis she walked out into the street and greatly surprised a burly cart-man who was beating his horse over the head with the butt of his heavy whip for she took the whip away from him and then made such a persuasive appeal in behalf of the ignorantly offending horse that he was tripped into saying he was to blame and also into volunteering a promise which of course he couldn't keep for he was not built in that way a promise that he wouldn't ever abuse a horse again that sort of interference in behalf of abused animals was a common thing with her all her life and her manner must have been without offense and her good intent transparent for she always carried her point and also won the courtesy and often the friendly applause of the adversary all the race of dumb animals had a friend in her by some subtle sign the homeless hunted bedraggled and disreputable cat recognized her at a glance as the born refuge and champion of his sort and followed her home his instinct was right he was as welcome as the prodigal son we had nineteen cats at one time in eighteen forty five and there wasn't one in the lot that had any character not one that had any merit except the cheap and tawdry merit of being unfortunate they were a vast burden to us all including my mother but they were out of luck and that was enough they had to stay however better these than no pets at all children must have pets and we were not allowed to have caged ones an imprisoned creature was out of the question my mother would not have allowed a rat to be restrained of its liberty in the small town of hannibal missouri when i was a boy everybody was poor but didn't know it 
and everybody was comfortable, and did know it. And there were grades of society, people of good family, people of unclassified family, people of no family. Everybody knew everybody, and was affable to everybody, and nobody put on any visible airs, yet the class lines were quite clearly drawn, and the familiar social life of each class was restricted to that class. It was a little democracy which was full of liberty, equality, and Fourth of July, and sincerely so, too. Yet you perceived that the aristocratic taint was there. It was there, and nobody found fault with the fact, or ever stopped to reflect that its presence was an inconsistency. I suppose that this state of things was mainly due to the circumstance that the town's population had come from slave states and still had the institution of slavery with them in their new home. My mother, with her large nature and liberal sympathies, was not intended for an aristocrat, yet through her breeding she was one. Few people knew it, perhaps, for it was an instinct, I think, rather than a principle. So its outward manifestation was likely to be accidental, not intentional, and also not frequent. But I knew of that weak spot. I knew that privately she was proud that the Lamptons, now earls of Durham, had occupied the family lands for nine hundred years, that they were feudal lords of Lampton Castle, and holding the high position of ancestors of hers when the Norman conqueror came over to divert the Englishry. I argued, cautiously and with mollifying circumlocutions, for one had to be careful when he was on that holy ground, and mustn't cavort that there was no particular merit in occupying a piece of land for nine hundred years with the friendly assistance of an entail anybody could do it with intellect or without therefore the entail was the thing to be proud of just the entail and nothing else consequently she was merely descended from an entail and she might as well be proud of being descended from a mortgage, whereas my own ancestry was quite a different and superior thing, because it had the addition of an ancestor, one Clemens, who did something, something which was very creditable to him, and satisfactory to me, in that he was a member of the court that tried Charles I and delivered him over to the executioner. Ostensibly this was chaff, but at the bottom it was not. I had a very real respect for that ancestor, and this respect has increased with the years, not diminished. He did what he could toward reducing the list of crowned shams of his day. However, I can say this for my mother, that I never heard her refer in any way to her gilded ancestry when any person not a member of the family was present, for she had 
good American sense, but with other Lamptons, whom I have known, it was different. Colonel Sellers was a Lampton, and a tolerably near relative of my mother's, and when he was alive, poor old airy soul, one of the earliest things a stranger was likely to hear from his lips was some reference to the head of our line, flung off with a painful casualness that was wholly beneath criticism as a work of art. It compelled inquiry, of course. It was intended to compel it. Then followed the whole disastrous history of how the Lambton heir came to this country a hundred and fifty years or so ago, disgusted with that foolish fraud, hereditary aristocracy, and married, and shut himself away from the world in the remoteness of the wilderness, and went to breeding ancestors of future American claimants, while at home in England he was given up as dead and his titles and estates turned over to his younger brother, usurper, and personally responsible for the perverse and unseatable usurpers of our day. And the colonel always spoke with studied and courtly deference of the claimant of his day, a second cousin of his, and referred to him with entire seriousness as the earl. The earl was a man of parts and might have accomplished something for himself but for the calamitous accident of his birth. He was a Kentuckian, and a well-meaning man, but he had no money and no time to earn any, for all his time was taken up in trying to get me and others of the tribe to furnish him capital to fight his claim through the House of Lords with. He had all the documents, all the proofs he knew he could win. And so he dreamed his life away, always in poverty, sometimes in actual want, and died at last, far from home, and was buried from a hospital by strangers who did not know he was an earl, for he did not look it. That poor fellow used to sign his letters Durham, and in them he would find fault with me for voting the Republican ticket, for the reason that it was unaristocratic, and by consequence unlamptonian. And presently along would come a letter from some red-hot Virginian, some of my other branch, and abuse me bitterly for the same vote, on the ground that the Republican was an aristocratic party and it was not becoming in the descendant of a regicide to train with that kind of animal. And so I used to almost wish I hadn't any ancestors they were so much trouble to me. As I have said, we lived in a slaveholding community. Indeed, when slavery perished, my mother had been in daily touch with it for sixty years. Yet, kind-hearted and compassionate as she was, I think she was not conscious that slavery was a bald, grotesque, and unwarrantable usurpation. She had never heard it assailed in any pulpit, but had heard it defended and 
sanctified in a thousand. Her ears were familiar with Bible texts that proved it, but if there were any that disapproved it, they had not been quoted by her pastors. As far as her experience went, the wise and the good and the holy were unanimous in the conviction that slavery was right, righteous, sacred, the peculiar pet of the deity, and a condition which the slave himself ought to be daily and nightly thankful for. Manifestly, training and association can accomplish strange miracles. As a rule, our slaves were convinced and content. So, doubtless, are the far more intelligent slaves of a monarchy. They revere and approve their masters, the monarch and the noble, and recognize no degradation in the fact that they are slaves, slaves with the name blinked and less respectworthy than were our black ones, if to be a slave by meek consent is baser than to be a slave by compulsion, and doubtless it is. However, there was nothing about the slavery of the Hannibal region to rouse one's dozing humane instincts to activity. It was the mild domestic slavery, not the brutal plantation article. Cruelties were very rare, and exceedingly and wholesomely unpopular. To separate and sell the members of a slave family to different masters was a thing not well liked by the people, and so it was not often done, except in the settling of estates. I have no recollection of ever seeing a slave auction in that town, but I am suspicious that that is because the thing was a common and commonplace spectacle, not an uncommon and impressive one. I vividly remember seeing a dozen black men and women chained to one another once and lying in a group on the pavement awaiting shipment to the southern slave market. Those were the saddest faces I have ever seen. Chained slaves could not have been a common sight, or this picture would not have made so strong and lasting an impression upon me. The nigger trader was loathed by everybody. He was regarded as a sort of human devil who bought and conveyed poor helpless creatures to hell, for to our whites and blacks alike the southern plantation was simply hell. No milder name could describe it. If the threat to sell an incorrigible slave down the river would not reform him, nothing would. His case was past cure. It is commonly believed that an infallible effect of slavery was to make such as lived in its midst hard-hearted. I think it had no such effect, speaking in general terms. I think it stupefied everybody's humanity as regarded the slave, but stopped there. There were no hard-hearted people in our town. I mean, there were no more than would be found in any other town of the same size in any other country. 
and in my experience hard-hearted people are very rare everywhere. End of section 11. Jane Lampton Clemens.